0: Welcome to the People Power podcast. People Power is a community passionate about sustainability and empowering people to change the world. And we are your hosts, Natasha, Becky and Anna. This podcast is part of the Getting to Know You series where we find out about the people behind People Power. If you feel inspired, follow the links in the show notes to find out more about People Power and how you can be involved. Welcome to the People Power podcast. With me today I've got Danny Hubbard and I'm really looking forward to talking to him because I've worked with him on a couple of People Power projects and I happen to know he's at least as obsessed about plants as I am, probably more. So welcome Danny. Could you start by telling us a bit about yourself?
1: I work as a community gardener for the Royal Horticultural Society, the RHS. That means that I work very closely with a number of community groups around Surrey, actually, which is where one of the RHS's show gardens, Wisley, is based. I create these community gardens uh, for local groups, working very closely with them to plan Design and passing on horticultural skills to their members so that they can keep their gardens going. Outside of that, I'm really interested in working with organisations like People Power to just get people excited about plants and the world outside, what's going on around them, especially green spaces within cities, So learning more about which plants we have in our parks, along our canals, and how we can use them.
0: So what's a really underappreciated plant? You were saying that once you kind of tune in, you see them Mm -hmm. everywhere. Are there any that you notice that most of us would just walk straight past and not appreciate at all?
1: That's really interesting. I've actually been reading a book called Weeds, by Richard Mabey, who's a really big name in foraging and UK native species. And that has really brought my attention to just how much biodiversity in terms of plants we, we have, even in our cities. I think it's really easy to look at something like a hedge road along the side of a public footpath and to just see a kind of blur of brown or green but if you actually look a little bit closer and if you start to learn more about what we've got in our hedgerows they're really incredible sources of food and of interest and also of not just food for humans but for pollinators and insects and there's so much there that if we learn to look it becomes something that is a source of fascination and that can then really enrich our engagement with what we would normally consider to be pretty mundane. The UK does have some amazing things to eat just lying around. At the moment, we've got acorns everywhere and you can eat acorns. You do have to roast them quite thoroughly and take off the shells, but they're a fantastic nut to eat, you know. They're, they're kind of almondy, I would say. They're a fantastic alternatives to what we're currently flying in from all over the world. Another weed which I've been scoffing lately is fat hen, which is a pretty nondescript little weed that grows, well, everywhere really, open ground, but especially along kind of canals and brownfield sites. And it looks a bit like a spinach leaf. It's got that spear shaped leaf. It's a little bit less rubbery feeling than the spinach leaf, but it's kind of hairy or downy leaf coating and it does taste like spinach actually it's got a really nice flavor and that's what it was introduced to the UK for hundreds of years ago but since has become a rampant weed in the minds of horticulturalists but there are just two examples of foods that we can just literally look out of our window and (laughs) If, if we learn how to forage them and how to prepare them, we can enrich our engagement with the, the UK's landscape and also completely change the way we think about food. It's quite empowering that it becomes something you can literally pick out of hedgerows whilst you're walking along, as opposed to something you need to sweat over and have expert gardening knowledge in. It's actually all there. We can just pick it. It's, it's free.
0: It sounds like it's a way of us connecting with our British heritage as well. You are saying that Fat Hen, was it? it? came hundreds of years ago and was introduced as a foodstuff and now grows in the hedgerow. I mean, that's a wonderful piece of history right there. Mm. Um, are there any rules about foraging? Like, if I go out picking things, are, are there any rules? Am I going to get in trouble or what can I just go? <laughs>
1: Mm, Yeah, you might get in trouble. So there are a couple of scenarios you might find yourself in and there are different rules for different types of place. It's very simple for private land. You have to have the permission of the landowner if you're going to forage. On their land or in fact even go on their land in the first place otherwise it's trespassing so that's relatively simple on common land such as towpaths and a lot of parks and obviously commons and village greens it can be a little bit more complex The general rule is that yes, you have the right to forage. That is excluding digging things like roots up from the soil because that can lead to damage to habitats and flora. So that's the general rule. However, on top of that, a lot of areas especially if they're protected by conservation laws will have additional bylaws which prevent you from foraging certain things so for example in Epping Forest near where I live they had a lot of businesses coming in and picking loads and loads of the mushrooms that grow in the forest for conservation reasons the council didn't want that happening so they've created bylaws that mean that you can't forage mushrooms in Epping Forest so if I was going to go foraging around that area I I would certainly be Googling the local bylaws for Epping Forest to see what, if anything, I'd be allowed to forage. And they should all of those bylaws be available online.
0: Mm, Those are definitely rules we need to be aware of. Are there any apps that can help us identify plants and find out what bylaws are active in our area?
1: No, there's no way that we're at that stage with foraging yet even for the purpose of identifying plants, I wouldn't recommend using a plant finder for foraging because you need to be 100% certain that the plant is the plant that you want it to be in order to eat it. An app isn't gonna give you that, whereas learning from a professional or learning from a professionally written book does give you that certainty in identifying plants
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely know what you're eating before, (laughs) before eating it. It's always a good thing, even when you're in the supermarket, that's good advice.
1: Mm.
0: So would you say that there's quite a lot of crossover between what you do for a day job and your sustainability related work?
1: Well, yeah, I think there, <laughs> there is a, a, a slight danger of my whole life becoming a bit of a busman's holiday because that's what happens when you hit on something that you really enjoy doing. Plants are so ubiquitous, it's kind of hard to escape them once you tune in to them. Yeah, I found that my obsession or enthusiasm for horticulture and plants, which I've only really let snowball in the last sort of two years or so, yeah, it has permeated into most things that I, that I now do.
0: <laughs> cool. So, if someone was going to set up a community garden and wanted to make use of a space in their community like that, what would they do? How would they get help from the Royal Horticultural Society or, and from you?
1: <laughs> so, the RHS has a few different ways of supporting groups. We offer funding and formal kind of routes to support some groups and and some groups we just have long-term relationships with. But essentially the process would be pretty similar in terms of setting up a garden. Practically speaking, what you start with can look very uninspiring. And I think that one of the biggest steps is actually learning to visualise something different. So the first thing to do would be to really have a good look at the space that you've got in a number of ways. There's some more general ways that you can look at a space in terms of which way it faces, north, south, east, west. Um, Are there big trees or buildings causing shade in certain areas? And those are fundamental things that will affect which plants you can actually put in that space and what it will end up looking or feeling like. So if you've got a really shady space, then you're not going to be able to grow a tropical sort of planting scheme with banana trees and things because they love sun. But you might be able to go for a kind of woodland theme with lots of interesting bulbs and underplanting and ferns. So that is actually a really important thing to do at first, is to look at the fundamental features of your space, the hard landscaping, as well as the orientation, the exposure that it has to the elements and things like that. It's
0: really interesting what you're saying about the shade, because it's obviously such a fundamental thing to plants. But I think as more of a novice gardener, um, I mean, I was sort of brought up on the whack it in and see if it grows kind of philosophy of gardening. I wouldn't have necessarily even thought about that. I've got a very baby garden in the communal garden in my block of flats. So I'm listening and learning. For those of us who've never built a garden before, um, how can we go about getting ideas to build a vision for what the garden would be? Because you mentioned how it's important to look beyond what's there at the moment, because the current state of a garden is nowhere near its potential often. Mm. So how can we build a vision?
1: It can be quite intimidating to have It looks like quite a grey space and try and envisage it as a green space. The internet can be helpful and also a hindrance. But of course, ultimately, you want to get a feel for that space and you probably want to experience it firsthand. So I would say actually going to visit different parks, gardens and places that you like just... Having an awareness when you're in an outside space, being like, I like this, it makes me feel relaxed or or happy. Why is that? Is it because there's running water? Is it because there's loads of color? Is it because there's loads of bees on the plants? What is it that makes me like this outside space? and I think if you're going to create a successful outside space you need to decide what it's for and why you are going to enjoy that outside space so that is a good place to begin
0: that's really useful thank you so in the last year Obviously, there's been a pandemic and we've been in lockdown and I imagine your year has looked very different mm. to previous years. So ha- how has the COVID-19 situation impacted your work?
1: Yeah, it has completely changed things for me. Unfortunately, the RHS weren't able to keep me on full time and followed me for the last six months. But that has provided some time to think and also just discover some new aspects of working with plants that I didn't have time for before. I've been able to work with People Power and run the Growers Club that ran throughout August, which was fantastic. We all supported each other through growing a few little things some kind of basic veg that we had from tomatoes and radishes to greens and lettuces and, and some people were in flats with with no outside space whatsoever and some people had great big gardens. It was just a chance to get together and support each other through our trials and tribulations and also disasters. Ironically I as the group leader had the least success growing because the squirrels were super active in my garden. Whatever I seemed to put in place to prevent them from gnawing away at little seedlings and digging up the soil, they seemed to get around it. So every week that I came back to the group, I just had another picture of total destruction. As well as that, I have been working with Organic Lee, who are an organic veg box scheme based out in Chingford, And that has been really interesting from two perspectives, really. Horticulturally, it's been great to understand a bit more about permaculture and organic growing. Normally, if you're growing vegetables, you operate at what's called a crop rotation, which many of you will have heard of. But you'll normally rotate through maybe four or five different years for four or five different crops organically operate on one of their main fields a 10-year crop rotation So they've got 10 different families of crops that they are rotating year after year after year in order to enrich the soil in different ways and make sure that nutrients that are taken out are restored over a long period of time. This can also have beneficial effects on the ability of pests and disease to establish themselves in that soil. Because if you keep changing the crop, you disrupt their life cycle. So I was amazed at how healthy all of their crops were, how few pest and disease problems they actually had compared to more conventional farming methods. And also it was just beautiful to see the, the sheer variety of crops that they grew. It was vibrant with wildflower strips to encourage pollinators and 10 different families of crops growing side by side, so it's quite something, and I'd really recommend popping your head through the door to somewhere like organically if you want to see it done differently.
0: That's very different to the way that agriculture is normally done. This sounds like such a good idea. Is it feasible to do it on a big scale? How can we encourage farmers to behave a bit more sustainably in that way? But I know there must be challenges to this method of farming, so
1: It's a very big question. (laughs) Actually, I I only mentioned one of the two. (laughs) I went down a bit of a rabbit hole in that last question, talking about crop rotation. But the second reason that I found Organic Lee so interesting is a cooperative. So all of its paid staff have an equal share in the business and they get paid equally and they all sort out the different challenges that they face together. And all their employees knew about all the aspects of the business from their finances to their volunteer management. I think models like that can make it more palatable for people in cities to transition over to lifestyles that are more engaged in agriculture. They are also demonstrating that it is possible to run small-scale farming on the edge of a city. And I think that's a really great thing to be doing, providing an example of what they would call peri-urban agriculture. But in general, I mean, gosh, there's so much discussion about where farming is going. And we have to be careful here, right? Because the majority of farmers probably do really care about the soil and the environment. And the way that the the dialogue tends to go is it can appear that people blame farmers for for what they're doing to the soils. And there's a danger there that we ignore the way the system is set up overall, putting pressures on farmers to prioritise productivity over those things like soil health and um, local biodiversity, which is so important. But there are ways that that is changing. It's a huge question. (laughs) But I think if we all knew a little bit more about soil health and how important it is about organic farming and changed our consumption choices a little bit, that would be a great place to start because there needs to be a real incentive for people to get into organic growing. And that is primarily going to come from people changing their consumption habits.
0: Yeah, It's definitely more about supporting farmers to make changes because it's in their interest for soil to be healthy, like separate from the demands that society puts on them. Why would they not want their farms yeah. to be as healthy as possible?
1: I, I was listening to, I think it was Farming Today on Radio 4, and that was interesting because I think they've just banned the use of a pesticide That is used on oilseed rape, which is that bright yellow crop that you see. The seeds are used to make rapeseed oil, and it grows all over the UK, particularly in the kind of the middle of England. But because that pesticide is so fundamental at the moment to protecting that crop from basically being obliterated, there's nothing that's been put in place of that to support those farmers. So. Rather than finding another way around it, um, those farmers have basically been told that they can't really grow that crop anymore. There isn't a way to viably grow rapeseeds. And there haven't been financial incentives put in place for farmers to find those ways. So we might be seeing decreasing the amount of yellow fields across the countryside over the next couple of years.
0: That was really interesting. That's why I took us down a little, little rabbit hole. I'm, I'm going to bring us back to gardening. I was just wondering, because we were talking about the things that you've been doing during lockdown and while you've been furloughed. And I know a lot of people have been gardening during lockdown. And mm. I wondered what your take on how the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted people's attitude to gardening and to the outdoors.
1: So I think basically people have had a lot more time to look outside and they've been on a lot more walks around their neighbourhoods. People have had the time to notice what's there and I think people have felt a little bit more empowered to just give things a go because there is this kind of sense that what is there to lose at this stage and more positively there is more of a curiosity when life slows down a little bit you do start to wonder you know what can I do with that space or I wonder what that plant is um, that's been growing there for ages I, I don't know what it is So I think that those things, the sheer apocalyptic nature of the world we're living in at the moment, but also the slowing down of life and the subsequent curiosity has drawn people out into not just their gardens, but into community gardens as well. And whilst in my own role, things have been put on pause, what we've seen is the real grassroots community gardens certainly across London I think across the UK have been really busy because lots more people have had some time freed up and I think people have felt like they want the security almost of knowing how to grow vegetables to grow food. Mm. Um, I mean it sounds kind of extreme but I really do think that being in a, a A health pandemic does make people think about, you know, well, what skills do I have if everything across the world does go to shit and I can't then go to a supermarket? So, yeah, I think there is something quite interesting going on at the moment. And I think it's a really good time to get into gardening, particularly start to share and discover knowledge with other people in community gardens.
0: And I suppose taking from what you were saying just there about the sense of security that knowing you can grow food provides, there's sort of hope in it as well, isn't there? It's like, even though we're in the middle of a global pandemic, I can still plant a seed and it will Mm. grow, which is quite powerful.
1: There is. And I think that really draws people outside because there is always hope outside. There's always spring. There's a certain dependability to the way that the year progresses in, in horticulture, in plants, in the outside world. I just add to that as well, as I was saying before about foraging and things. I think that's another avenue as well. Not just what can I grow, but what's already there?
0: So I'm going to pivot slightly and ask you a couple of more general questions about your life. My first question is, what single change in your own life do you think has had the biggest impact on your sustainability and your carbon footprint?
1: I made a choice a couple of years ago to have a career that was fundamentally oriented towards working with nature. Living in a big city, I live in London, makes it difficult to fight for nature in a really proactive way, simply because I think most people just don't have the time if you're living quite a busy existence. And once one or orientates your career towards something that is nature based, for me that was something from which so many other choices followed. It's made me feel so much more in tune with nature, really, I think. I know that sounds Kind of funny and quasi-spiritual but what i actually mean is that i've got more of an awareness of what's around me of what season it is what is happening to the city around me how it's developing how it's changing it's just made it much easier for me to feel like i can be a bit of a voice representing someone that cares and knows about nature which i think everyone wants to do but not everyone has time to do. And having a job that allows you to engage with nature and the outside world certainly puts you in a position to become an advocate for something that is under threat at the moment.
0: It sounds like that was a really powerful life choice you made, using your career to improve your connection to nature. I wonder if you have any tips and tricks for those of us who also want to improve our connection to nature, but who maybe aren't in a position to make a large career change
1: obviously i'm not saying everyone has to go and get a job working outside because that's not what everyone needs to do but there are definitely things you can do to bring yourself closer to the outside world a lot of friends of mine through lockdown have started going for a quick walk before they start their working day going for a 20 minute walk before you start your day allows you to notice things when you're in a very impressionable and open-minded state in the morning But it also refreshes you and gets you really prepared for the day. It's a really great thing to do. The other thing that me and my partner are going to hopefully begin next week is to start the London Green Train Walk, which takes you all the way around Um, the outside of London in a series of walks between two train stations so you get your lunch get your bag you you get on the train turn up to I don't know like Bromley or wherever on the edge of London and it takes you on a really interesting walk to another station and then you can get home quickly I'm keen to discover new parts of London and I think that'll, that'll be really inspiring and finally the the other thing that i'd suggest is actually look into community gardens that they have near them. Loads of urban farms, city farms, and community gardens run day courses and weekend groups and ways for people to make a first step into increasing their knowledge in horticulture or growing or farming and I'd recommend that to anyone they're often cheap or free so it's definitely worth getting online having a look what's out there and getting out in your local community I think.
0: Lots of great tips there thank you. So you're talking more about what we can do as individuals to be more sustainable and, and connect with nature more. What do you think is the biggest barrier regarding becoming more sustainable as a society?
1: Mm. So I think one of the biggest barriers that people face is transparency. And what I mean by transparency is things like food labelling and the uh, carbon footprint of different things that we buy. Humans are really inquisitive creatures. We really like to weigh up different decisions that we make and make those decisions kind of judgments but we're being prevented from doing that and there's only so much of an extent to which we're going to go home and do the research into like how much something is worth in terms of carbon to something else. I mean, I know I've been in a supermarket before with like a bunch of bananas in one hand and a plastic box of tomatoes in the other, trying to sort of quantify what the ecological impact of choosing one over the other might be. And it's just ridiculous. You can't make that choice. We aren't being educated at the moment to be carbon literate, and we're not being given that information by companies that produce our food either. They're complex decisions probably you would like to buy tomatoes and bananas in my example and maybe being in the supermarket isn't actually the best way to shop and the sustainability of the choice that you ultimately make probably depends on like what time of year it is, whether those two things are in season. So it's pretty complex is what I'm trying to say and we need help with that. So we need big institutions to step up, start labelling things, start being really clear In the meantime, while those changes are gradually taking place, organisations like Ethical Consumer, it's brilliant, you get all of that research and that information, not just into different goods like tomatoes, but into different supermarkets or providers that you could buy anything from like TVs to sun cream. So that's really interesting if you have a look on their website.
0: So People Power is obviously a can-do organisation. If there was one action that people listening could take away to help improve transparency in society regarding like the carbon impact of different foods. Do you have an action to recommend?
1: Well, we need to put ourselves on the line. We need to campaign in a big way for food regulation and transparency to change so that's one side but that's not easy practically speaking we need to just talk to one another within our friendship groups and our families and our connections it can come across as pretentious to start but i think if we can normalize having conversations about our spending habits and what we choose to buy in terms of carbon footprint and sustainability if we can normalize those conversations with our friends and people that we trust we will gradually together learn to support each other and actually learn a lot more about sustainability. Your own carbon footprint is a good place to begin.
0: That's a really good tip, thank you. And so now just for a change of pace and to keep you on your toes, we're going to have a quick fire round. So I'm going to start a sentence and I'd like you to finish it with the first thing that comes into your head. So are you ready? I think so. Okay, so the first one is, people are most empowered when?
1: They have agency over their physical surroundings, and their homes, their local green spaces. Without that, we are at risk of losing touch with cities and they can become uninspiring, oppressive and expensive places to live.
0: Cool. The second one is... I want people power to be?
1: Um, Able to meet regularly again. (laughs) I'd love to have the opportunity to run some growers club sessions in person. We haven't got that in place yet as a plan because nothing's clear enough. But I'd love to teach some practical gardening skills to growers club and just to meet them all for the first time in person. (laughs)
0: Yeah, people power is normally so hands on. We've really had to adapt in the last year, haven't we? Obviously, projects are taking on a virtual dimension, and Growers Club was an example of that. But it will be great when we can get our hands dirty again, um, quite literally, yeah. in the case of gardening. So, thank you very much for chatting with me. Before we finish up, is there anything that you would like to promote?
1: um just if you're interested in growers club keep your ear to the ground we'll definitely be trying to get some practical sessions and meetups in place early next year or whenever it becomes feasible so keep an eye out for that
0: perfect it was a pleasure to speak to you thank you very much danny cheers you have been listening to the people power podcast look into the show notes for how to find us and links relevant to today's episode if you liked what you heard remember sharing is caring so like subscribe and share and let us know in the comments what you would like to hear more of